This is Karen Roach, adjunct faculty member at Loyola University of Chicago in the Graduate School of Social Work. This recording is going to be an overview of the properties of groups. I'm going to talk about the actual property, the operational definition, and your role as a worker or facilitator with the property. It's important to know each property, operational definition, and your role for the exam. Just like Gallum's therapeutic factors, these are clinical terms for you to have background, knowledge, and frame of reference. These are not terms that we use to discuss with our members as we watch the process of the group unfold. The first property is background and history. The definition is the history of the group itself along with the history of individual members. Background and history is actually important when it comes to the group composition, especially at the very beginning. Groups that have a previous history working together are going to demonstrate that history within their first sessions. The cohesion might already be high. There might already be intimacy between members. They also are bringing with them any information, experiences that they have previously had together. The history of individual members is also important to consider. Each one of us walks into a group experience with baggage, good or bad, and it has an impact on how we respond to each other within our group and how we are going to carry out our individual roles as members. As a worker or facilitator, it's imperative that you have active knowledge of both. This will actually impact the way that you respond to your group members and how you will set up the group. A group that has previously worked with each other is going to um, have a little bit more ability to come together more quickly, and you're going to be the one that is absent of this history. The second property is communication patterns. This includes things like maypole, round robin, and free floating. I'm going to discuss each of these individually. A maypole communication pattern is where you are standing and talking at them. It's pretty traditional of an educational setting or a group where you are seen as the expert. The members all sit around you and you are delivering the message in more of a psychoeducational approach. Around robin communication pattern is where the members are just going around almost like in a circle to share their experiences or answer questions and participate. Free-floating, also known as popcorn style, is where it's very open communication and members can just share what they're thinking uh, when it comes to mind or when there's a good opportunity within the group experience. Communication patterns also have to do with self-disclosure level, Nonverbal and verbal communication. So self-disclosure level is going to generally be low earlier in the group process or with task groups, and it tends to be higher as the group becomes more cohesive, the barriers are evaporated, and members are more comfortable within the group. We do see higher cohesion in treatment or therapy groups, along with self-help and support groups as compared to educational or task groups. Your role as the worker is to model healthy communication by providing construction, constructive and healthy feedback. This is also a great time to model with a co-facilitator or a co-leader. 
we always want to address what is being communicated, either verbally or non-verbally, among our members. It is absolutely okay if you see communication patterns that are unhealthy or going to have an adverse impact on the group to stop the group and work through those unhealthy or adverse communication patterns in order to move the group forward, emphasize safety, and help develop cohesion. The next property is participation patterns. It is defined by who talks to whom, who sit next to who sits next to whom, whether there's equal participation among all members, or if you tend to have somebody who emerges more as a monopolizer or on the other extreme, a silent member. We also look at the broad participation across the group. Your role as the worker is to encourage equal participation, and you can do this by cueing and reinforcing healthy participation patterns. The next property is cohesion. We've talked a lot about cohesion already, but this is basically the strength of the weakness of the group. Do they see themselves as one group operating all together, or are they very individualized in their communication and interaction? We can use universalization, one of Yalom's therapeutic factors, to help strengthen the bonds. The more we help group members see that they are like each other, the more they feel similar to each other, the higher cohesion we start to see. Oftentimes within a group experience, you will almost have this where it looks, all of a sudden it's like a light switch, where you feel like they were operating as very individualized members and suddenly you walk into the group or the group unfolds for that session and you have this sudden like feel good moment and you notice that the weeness of the group has changed. An example from one of my class groups was um, I had a group of students that were very individualized in nature. Even the way they sat around the room, they were all spread out. um, And even when they came together for their simulated group experience, they were still even physically more distant from each other than normal. During class, uh, one of the members actually received a sad phone call that a cousin had suddenly died. And from that moment moving forward, the entire group came together to not only support him in that moment, but also offer support later. They passed around a card in the next class. They gave it to him. Um, And from that moment forward, I just saw such a change in the weeness and cohesion of that group, even though the event that they experienced had nothing to do with their group process or goals. All right, moving on, uh, the next property is sociometric patterns. The operational definition is the friendship patterns and the alliances or subgroups that you notice, the power and status within the group. You can do a sociogram to identify your sociometric patterns. A sociogram just helps you to identify where bonds might be broken where bonds between members might be strong? Do you have subgroups, cliques, or alliances that are forming? And just know within these sociometric patterns, when we see alliances and subgroups, there's both positive and adverse influence of those alliances and subgroups. We're gonna get into that a little bit later in the semester, but just know the identification of that is part of the sociometric patterns. 
Your role as the worker is to guide the development of these patterns and address intense subgroups, especially if they are impacting adversely the way that your group is operating or processing. A way that you can guide the development of patterns is through possible seating arrangements. It might even be through purpose-driven activities. You might want to separate the group into your own subgroups or partner them up according to the way that you're going to partner them instead of the organic partnerships, alliances, or subgroups that might form um, within the group members. It's just a nice way to start to break that up and have them interacting with everybody. A side note, uh, many students often confuse communication patterns, participation patterns, and sociometric patterns. So be sure that you can easily differentiate those three things in application. The next property is standards and norms. These are kind of the rules of the group. These may or may not be verbalized, and a lot of times they are established with intention but they also evolve over time as the group um, begins to expand and progress and really work together. The rules of the group are often stated at the very beginning. Um, a lot of times a worker will facilitate that with feedback from group members. Another way to look at them is if you don't wanna necessarily call them rules is to either call them expectations or what I like best is values. These are the values that we have as a group. These help keep group members in line, it keeps them on task, and it also is a boundary for you to help maintain the safety of the group for all of your members. By having some of these verbalized and established, there are pieces that you can fall back on if a group member starts to struggle or if things kind of step that group out of line. Your role as a worker is to set these up as enforceable norms and to follow ethical practice. Of course, we have the rules or norms that are gonna be established as well as evolve based on our interactions with each other, based on the needs of the group. Demographics are gonna play into this. You're gonna have different rules or norms if you're working with kids versus adults. Um, but it's really important no matter what that as a facilitator, you are enforcing these norms. The next property is structure and organization. This is how things proceed, who is responsible for what. Again, these can be visible or invisible. They can be completely created with intention or they may evolve over time. As we start working through the group sessions, um, it is always my recommendation to have a pretty set structure. It just offers consistency and predictability for the group members. They know exactly what to expect every session. Of course, the actual content is going to change, but the process can be exactly the same. Your goal and one of your roles as the worker is to provide the structure and facilitate the organization of the session as you move forward. The next property is procedures. Uh, the operational definition is that these formal procedures drive the group. For treatment groups, the procedures will usually develop over time, whereas for a task group, they're going to be very specific um, because there are very specifically identified roles tasks and things that you're trying to accomplish. Your role as the worker is to be familiar and comfortable with all outline procedures. 
It's important to know that sometimes procedures will simply come from the governing organization or the agency, um, hospital setting, wherever you might be running the group. The next property is goals and purpose. Uh, this is the group's objectives or shared ideas. They should always be clear and they must be realistic and attainable. One of the things that is going to be somewhat challenging is that every individual is going to have individual treatment goals while also having the goals of the group as a whole. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this. Um, in my work at school with the kids, every IEP student and student with an individualized education plan has goals for social work. Each individual education plan has its own goal based on what that child needs. But when I put the kids together in a group, we have an overarching goal and purpose of the group for the school year. It's the overarching goal and purpose that through activity, I am now starting to meet those individual goals that are on their IEPs. As a worker and facilitator, it is your role to establish and periodically review the purpose and the goals. Are you progressing towards meeting the goals? Are all of your sessions meeting the group's purpose? If yes, fantastic, keep going. If no, then it's important to take a step back and ask yourself why. Were the needs of the group different than what you might have identified at the beginning? Or is the group getting off track and it's your job to kind of pull them back in? And finally, the last property is group culture. These are the values, beliefs, and traditions of the group. Oftentimes within groups, you will start to identify symbols and rituals that occur, and they highly influence member interaction. Sometimes culture of the group, it gets created based on the background and history of individual members or the group as a whole and what they bring into the group. It is your role to help members recognize and clarify what the group culture is. Those are the properties of groups and I just want to reiterate that it is important to know each of the properties, be able to operationally define each property, know what your role as the worker is, and be able to apply each property in a given case example. You do need to know these for your exam.